Would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who were elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. This is God's word. There's a classic illustration about a contest challenging artists to paint a picture of perfect peace. Painting after painting depicted beautiful, serene scenes. The second place finisher displayed a mirror-smooth lake reflecting the lacy green branches under the soft blush of the evening day along the grassy shore with a flock of sheep grazing undisturbed. When the winter was unveiled, many in the audience were perplexed because the scene was of a roaring waterfall crashing down on the stones below it. Dark clouds filled the sky and lightning could be seen in a distance and you could practically hear the thunder. But as they looked more closely, they saw this spindly little tree tucked into the cleft of the rocks and out of that tree was a little branch that poked out underneath the waterfall. And on that branch was a nest with a bird with the eyes closed perfectly calm, sitting on her eggs. Perfect peace comes in the storms of life. This is what we all long for. We're going to endure trials, troubles, suffering, disappointments. We know those are coming our way, but in the middle of those, could we have that kind of peace? Jesus said to his disciples the night he was arrested, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world does, gives, do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Let's pray. Our Father, these words resonate in our hearts, and they are the words that Jesus himself gave us, a promise that he offers this incredible peace, not the peace the world offers, but a special spiritual peace with you. Lord, open ourselves to understand and see not only this peace, but the way to this peace. Christ, we pray. Amen. The Apostle Peter wrote 1 Peter to five Roman colonies who were being ostracized, mistreated, and persecuted for their faith. 
Peter calls his, listen, his readers to respond to their persecutors the same way Jesus responded to his. And in that way, they would reflect Christ to this pre-Christian culture that so desperately needed Christ. Last week, we began to unpack these first two verses. We saw that Peter was offering to them an identity in Jesus Christ. And that identity was the, as the elect of the chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. And what that meant was that God loved them from before the world were made. He loves them when they were born. He loves them now. He loves them tomorrow. And he loves them forever. And that identity was to be a secure base out of which they could endure anything in their lives. Um, I had the pleasure this week to witness my two-year-old granddaughter's first 4th of July. And so I was there on the blanket with her, and I knew, having never experienced fireworks, how unsettling they could be. So I, I drew close to her and put my arm around her. And when the fireworks started going off, she snuggled closely. I put my other arm around her, patting her on the back as she, she looked, and then she hid her eyes and hid into my chest and looked again. And I patted her, and then finally she started to relax and looked a little more, and then I took my arm away, and all of a sudden she reaches, grabs, and puts <laughs> my arm back around her. But she slowly felt more and more comfortable and eventually was saying, look, look. I want that image in our hearts because that's the Father. We can come and embrace and live in the love of God the Father. And because of the persecution and what they're undergoing, the first thing Peter does is he establishes their identity as the beloved of God. Then he talks about the Spirit of God and how that Spirit of God sets them apart. He says earlier they're strangers, but they're very special strangers because they're God's strangers, set apart for the Spirit of God to work in their lives. And then he gives them the goal to be obedient to Christ. And we saw last week, that's much more than simply obeying Christ's commands. That's a call to, not, to live as Christ, to see as Christ, to feel as Christ, to be as Christ. And the way not only to know Christ, to get the Spirit, and to walk in Christ, is to know when we sin, we are constantly and continually cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ that he shed on the cross. And so we saw last week he establishes and really summarizes the Christian life. Then he brings a salutation. Grace and peace. These two words combine the traditional Greek greeting. Their greeting was grace Peter tweaks the word to a more Christianized version of grace. And 
the Hebrew greeting, shalom. Even though he writes it in Greek, we can see that this word is filled with the meaning of shalom. When we understand these two words, we understand what Peter is desiring for their lives in the midst of the storms of their lives. And what he, God desires for each of our lives. He wants us to experience peace and to gain that peace by living by grace. We know this is more than a regular salutation because he adds the words that the grace and peace would be multiplied to you. One of our traditional greetings is, how are you? And usually we say, fine, and they say, that's good. And it doesn't seem to have a whole lot of meaning. But if somebody says, how are you, really? All of a sudden, it's filled with meaning. That person actually wants to know how we're doing. It's not just a, a, a greeting. It's a desire to know how we're doing. So Paul, to me, Peter, by saying, I want these in your life abundantly. I want them multiplied in your life, shows that he is filling these words full with meaning. He wants us to experience peace, an increasing peace throughout our lives. He wants us to live by grace increasingly throughout our lives. So what we're going to do this morning is look at those two words. What God wants for our lives is shalom. The way we get shalom is to live by grace and let that increase in our lives. So what is this shalom? Cornelius Plantinga in his book, not the way it's supposed to be, captures uh, the essence of it. He says, The webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight is what the Hebrew prophets called shalom. We call it peace. But it means far more than mere peace of mind or a ceasefire between enemies. In the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, delight. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. That's what God wants in our lives. And Jesus Christ is going to bring all of this into our lives when he returns. But there is a semblance of this that we can have here and now. Plantinga is saying, our world is broken. It's not the way it's supposed to be. Our relationship with God is fractured. Our relationship with ourselves is fractured. Our relationship with one another is fractured. Our relationship with creation itself is fractured. And we go back to the early chapters of the Bible. Genesis chapter 3, we see how all of this fracturing takes place because of sin. Our relationship with God was severed because of sin. See, the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, 
lived in an eternal love relationship where they were mutually glorifying each other. They were all about each other. And so they created humanity not out of any sense of need, for they had a perfect love relationship, but because the essence of God is love, he wants that to expand. So he creates humanity to experience the, the incredible joy that he has in his own relationship among himself. And so he creates us to receive his love, to receive his glory, to love him in return, and to glorify him in return and living in this union with him. And that is a life of joy. So he offered that to Adam and Eve. He creates them in his image. He places them in a paradise in the Garden of Eden where they have everything. They can be completely fulfilled just through God and his good gifts to them. But Eve wasn't satisfied. She fell to the temptation of the serpent when he essentially said, so God lets you have any tree in the garden, but in reality, he's keeping the one tree from you that will fulfill you and bring you joy. And she fell to that, and she substituted this tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for God. Instead of accepting and living in him, she rejected him to think, thinking, I, God isn't enough. I need this tree, and this tree will make me like God. And so she is the one who pushed away God, and she usurped his throne. Instead of turning to God and saying, Help me to understand what good and evil is. You are the one who determines what is right and wrong. She took that tree unto herself and said, I will be my own God. I will determine what's right and wrong in my life. And that attitude continues even to today, showing our fractured relationship with God. And then we see it in the results of sin. After she eats of that tree, gives it to Adam, the first thing they do is they have to cover up and then they hide from God. Our relationship with God is broken. Our relationship with ourselves is broken. Genesis chapter 2, at the end of the chapter, it says, man and woman were both naked and were unashamed. They weren't ashamed. What that's saying is, in original creation, Adam and Eve were comfortable in their own skin. They were fine with who they were. They didn't need to hide anything. There was no guilt, no shame, no embarrassment. They knew who they were. They knew their identity. They knew the way they were living, and they were at perfect peace with themselves. But we see after the sin, Genesis 3, 7, then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. All of a sudden, they were ashamed to be naked. They 
didn't want to be seen for who they were. They could not even face themselves. And so what we see again is they cover up their sins, trying to do it before God, doing it before each other, but also themselves. And so today, we know we do not live the way we should be living. We know we have all sorts of faults, shortcomings, selfishness, sin. And we carry guilt. And today, the thinking was, oh, try, just don't feel guilty. Forgive yourself. But ultimately, we know we need a forgiveness that's greater than our personal forgiveness. And so, we are ashamed now with who we are. The whole idea of psychological defense mechanisms is a way for us to live with ourselves as sinners. Then we see sin broke our relationship with each other. God created Adam and Eve and he made them one in marriage. And in that marriage, they were to reflect that deep oneness of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. That love was to be, have, be a greater love for each other than they had for themselves, just as the Father's love is greater for the Son than for himself, and the Son's is greater than his... His love for the Father is greater than his own love. And so he creates us to have that kind of love. But what do we see? As soon as Eve sins, her first act is not, I need to protect Adam from what's just happened to me because of the sin. Instead, she, in a very unloving way, brings him into her sin so that he will commit the same sin. And so today, our, our relationships are fractured. And in so many of our relationships we end up encouraging each other into selfishness and then often into sin. We're not protecting and in a, in helping one another. Then we see when God confronts Adam about his sin, his first response is to throw Eve under the bus. <laughs> don't blame me. I don't want this judgment. Judge Eve for this sin because it's her fault. This is not a loving relationship the way it's supposed to be. And our relationship with creation itself is broken. Verses 17 through 19, God says, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it may bring forth from you, for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And so death, which was not there, it is not supposed to be that way, enters into creation. Death and separation from God, death and separation from our bodies. And in pain, 
weeds, the hardships, all of the suffering that comes, comes as a result of the sin and the brokenness in our relationship with one another. God wants us to know peace, the way it's supposed to be. And that journey to peace comes through grace, the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ, a grace we need to refresh ourselves with every day, every hour, every moment. And if we do, we can have a, a peace, a shalom that Peter is talking about. We see it right in the third chapter, verse 15. In the midst of all of the judgment that is being pronounced on Adam and Eve, there's the ray of hope. God promises, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The serpent, Satan, is going to bruise the heel of an offspring generations away of Eve. And so he did by sending, securing the death sentence upon Jesus on the cross. But that was just a stepping stone, a stepping stone to God's plan because in that death, Jesus crushes the head of Satan and sin as he pays for the sin of the world. That is the gospel of grace that is, changes everything and will fix everything in this broken world so that when he returns, there will be no more death. Every tear shall be wiped away. But right now, he wants Christians to begin to experience that. And we can. Our relationship with God is restored at the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ. I like to share a simple presentation of the gospel that's come through evan uh, evangelistic explosion. It essentially says, God is holy. He wants a relationship with us. He created us for that. But sin separates us from God. Jesus Christ, he who know no sin, knew no sin, became sin for us that we might be the righteousness of God. When Christ takes away that sin, that leaves us back in relationship with God. To feel and experience the love of God as we were meant to experience. Paul prays for that. In Ephesians chapter 3, he says, I want you to be rooted and grounded in love, that you might have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up with all the fullness of God. Paul's saying, I want you to experience it. I want you to feel it. And when we do, our lives are anchored in that love. And they are drawn to that love and motivated by that love, as Jesus says in John 7. He who is forgiven much loves much. 
And of course, he who loves much lives for God. And now we are in right relationship. We start living out in right relationship with him. He's our friend. He's our father. He's our husband. When we experience the love of God, we start to unite with him. The cross of Jesus Christ brings us back into the right relationship with ourselves where we can have psychological wholeness. That shame, that guilt, when Christ takes our sin and puts it out of the way, guilt and shame should go be Go with it. And if you're still feeling guilty and shame as a Christian, if you've confessed that sin, allowed the, the application of the cross, then you are not getting the cross if you're still living in guilt. He takes that away. We will stumble. That's if we turn again to the cross. And every time we turn to the cross, it grows bigger and bigger in our lives. And we see more and more of our own sin to bring before him. But that, too, is forgiven. We can be both confident and humble because of the cross. We are confident because we are accepted by God. 1 Peter 1.18, you are ransomed from feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as gold or silver, but with the precious blood of Christ, that, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And what we're seeing in that is the price that God is willing to pay for us. If you were put on the auction block, I don't know how much your children would pay for you or your spouse would pay for you or your next-door neighbor would pay for you, but we know what God would pay for you. Not gold and silver, but the life of his son. And that's where we find our identity, and that gives us confidence in who we are in this world, to speak and live boldly. But... We do it in humility because we didn't learn it. We did nothing except to respond and say, thank you, thank you, thank you for that gift. Because by grace we are saved, not by works or anything we did ourselves. And so we can live authentically before God. We don't have to hide any sin from God because he forgives it. We don't have to lie to ourselves, deny our sin, blame others, because our sin's forgiven. We don't have to hide in front of other people, because though they may not accept us, we know God does. It's the cross that reestablishes our relationship with ourselves and with others. When we grasp the forgiveness of Jesus Christ, how great that is for us, it's impossible to withhold forgiveness from others. It's impossible to keep and harbor bitterness. When we've received that grace, when we know that Christ died for that sin that we're holding against people, 
all of that bitterness collapses. We are not in competition with others where we have to climb over them to get our way because we are fulfilled in God himself. We're back in the garden where we have everything that we need in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we're not fighting for identity through some kind of position or material possessions. And we're, we're not in competition with anyone. We're for everyone else because we're already fulfilled in Christ. Philippians 2 says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own personal interests, but also to the interests of others. And then he shows Jesus Christ. And Christ is not only the model, but it's his truth. If we are completely fulfilled in Christ, if your thirst is completely satiated and you get more water, what do you do with that water? You're filled. You look around for someone who needs that water. When we find our fullness in Jesus Christ, we can begin to live up to this verse of not looking out for our own selfish interests, but looking out the interests of others. Our relationship with one another is brought back into harmony. And our relationship with creation, particularly with suffering, we align with God and his feelings and understanding of that suffering. In Romans 8.32, pointing to the cross, Paul says, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And what's that saying is, if you ever question God's love, if you ever question if God is for you, if God is engaged in your life, if God wants the best for you, look at the cross, not the circumstances. Look at the cross, and there you will see God loves you, God's engaged, God's for you, God wants the best for you. And so when we look at the cross, we can trust that no matter what's going on, God's causing all things to work together for good to his glory. And when we are captured by the love of God, we love him in return, and we no longer look to fill our own glory, we leave that in God's hands. We no longer need to look out for our own personal interests to an extent that it drives our lives because God's looking out for those, we can live for God's glory. Think of it, I uh, remember going to awards banquets the senior year of my, my sons. And what did I want at the awards banquet? I wanted my sons to win the good awards. I wanted them to be honored. I wanted them to be glorified. Not because of who I am, but for their sake, because I love them. When we love God, we want his glory. We want him lifted up. We want him getting the prize. And we know sometimes that's going through suffering that transforms us whereby we can stand as a light to the world, to the glory of God. And we can endure because we know the end of the story. 
No matter what happens now, we know it ends with glory. Not just God's, but ours as well. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, We do not lose heart. Though our outer man is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, because we look at things that we look not at things that are seen, but at things that are unseen. The things that are seen are transient, the things that are unseen are eternal. And so we know the ultimate hope is what we're brought through here is simply producing greater riches for eternity. I don't know how many of you ever saw the play Man of La Mancha. Um, in the play, Miguel de Cervantes is arrested in the Inquisition. And he's thrown with other prisoners, and the prisoners uh, mock him, and they take uh, his possessions. But there's one possession he doesn't want them to have, and that's a book he wrote called Don Quixote. And so in order to defend himself... In this book, he has them act out the book in this play. And Don Quixote is uh, kind of loony, the way he looks at life and the way he goes through life. And uh, the prisoners themselves think, you know, Cervantes, that's who you are. You're loony. And uh, he responds, I've lived nearly 50 years and I've seen life as it is. Pain, misery, hunger, cruelty beyond belief. I've heard the singing from taverns and the moans from the bundles of filth on the streets. I've been a soldier, and I've seen my comrades fall in battle or die more slowly under the lash in Africa. I've held them in my arms at the final moments. These were men who saw life as it is. Yet they died despairing, no glory, no gallant last words, only their eyes filled with confusion, whimpering the question, why? I do not think they asked why they were dying, but why they had ever lived. When life seems itself lunatic, who knows where madness lies? Perhaps it's too practical, is madness. To surrender dreams, that may be madness. To seek treasure where there is only trash. Too much sanity may be madness. And maddest of all is to see life as it is and not as it should be. We can see life as it should be. Jesus Christ offers us a peace. When we grasp the grace of Christ and live out that grace of Christ, we can have that peace. The song they end with, of course, is to dream the impossible dream, to fight the unbeatable foe, to bear with unbearable sorrow, to run where the brave dare not go, to right the unrightable wrong, to love pure and chaste from afar. This is my quest. That's life as it should be. It's a life that we can live in Jesus Christ. Grace and peace. May you have it in abundance. Our Father, <clears throat> thank you for your word.
your word that in two words covers the expanse of all of scripture. Fill us with your grace. May we live at the foot of the cross. In Christ, amen.